on this prequel episode, we've got our Inkheart fan reaction. We're learning about Rudyard Kipling and previewing The Jungle Book. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Another week, another prequel, and we have so much to get into with today's topic of the Learning Things segment. So we're going to get right into thanking our patrons. We don't have any new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners, and they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Let Your Anger Fuel Your Activism, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Monsters and Mayhem is out now. That Darn Skag, V Frank, finally checked out GB or BB. My favorite part is Brian's attempt to align the timelines and tell us what TFIL is covering. And Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much, except for that second to last one. How is that your favorite part? That's a little bit of a backhanded compliment, I feel like, if your favorite part of the YouTube show <laughs> is, is the end. Where, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, that is always tough. I'm always bad at Usually the first episode I'm good at, mm. it's because it, we record two episodes at a time. The first right. one I, I'm good at because it's like what we're about to do or whatever. Yeah. It's the second one where I'm like trying to remember what the next thing we're going to be doing. You know what's funny again. about that, though, is that you have and have always had access to our schedule. Yeah, I just don't pull that open and put it in my notes. I could. <laughs> I could you do could. that. I just don't. I always forget to. And then at the end, I'm sitting there trying to reach and remember what it is. I get it like 50% of the time. <laughs> nah, maybe not that much. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it is also always interesting to see somebody who went from being a This Film is Lit fan and then going over the other way because a lot of them go. The yeah, it's direction. usually the other way around. So, yeah, that's fun. All right, it's time now to see what everybody had to say about Inkheart. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Alright, so on Patreon, we had four votes for the movie and one for the book. Ian from Wine Country said, Jennifer Connelly and Paul Bettany are married. We got so <laughs> we many got comments. We got so many I, had, I didn't know but that. But I, I had no idea. Yeah. I, clearly we had no idea, because that makes a lot more sense, but yes. I only know about celebrity couples that are, like, in the news all the time. Yeah. So yeah, literally had no idea. Yeah. Um, so they're married, uh, having met while shooting A Beautiful Mind in 2001. I did not know they were both in that movie. Uh, I guess I knew Jennifer Connelly was, but anyways. I don't think I've ever seen that. Got yeah, Russell Crowe. It's an okay, it was a fine movie. He's like a mathematician or something. I can't remember. I feel like I get that one confused with American Beauty in my head. Oh, I, it's funny because I think it's probably more like, if I had to guess, I think it's more like... Um, imitation game or something like that. I don't know like what A Beautiful Mind is about. I think it's just because they both have like the word beauty or beautiful in the <laughs> Fair. title. Fair enough. Anyway, <laughs> um, Ian went on to say, my guess is she did the cameo as an excuse to come vacation where Paul was shooting anyway, which makes sense because I believe it was in Italy. Yeah, they filmed on location yeah. for a lot of the stuff. I enjoyed the movie and I know there are more books that follow the original, but the characters felt a little half-baked to me. Dustfinger feels like almost the most nuanced character, but everyone else has like two or three character traits. Mo is missing a wife and has magic he doesn't like. Maggie is a daddy's girl and precocious. Eleanor is rich and sassy. Capricorn is evil. It felt like on the page they would be even flatter, but I could be wrong. 
Many of the characters have names that are just a tiny bit off. Maggie instead of Maggie, Risa instead of Lisa. I should mention here, because I don't think it came up, because I don't think the movie mentions it at all, that in the book, Risa is short for Teresa. We mentioned it several times in the episode. I Did believe we, we said, I, I believe we said, I, at one point, I think in, maybe in my summary, I said Teresa Risa, like oh, okay. I, I thought, I thought we I mentioned it at least once it that it was, but it, it would be very easy to yeah. miss if you want. And I, I don't know if they ever actually say Teresa in the movie. I don't remember. No, I, yeah, I don't remember either. Um, but Risa does sound like Lisa. Um, Mortimer, instead of a name that's not only ever found in literature. <laughs> there are a few Mortimers out there, but point taken. The main issue I have with the movie ending is that as long as she has a pen, Maggie is just the reality stone with extra steps. She can change literally anything about existence that she doesn't like at any time by merely writing it down and reading it out loud. That's a lot of power to give anyone, let alone a teenager. Hopefully Mo and Risa raise her right. It is a lot of power. Um, I think it's also, though, implied. Well, and I don't know. I guess it is interesting in that final in that end scene. When she, you know, what we forgot to do is go back and watch that scene. Oh, yeah, we Son did. Of a bitch. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> in that end scene, um, I don't know if they because so obviously the rest of the time, <clears throat> whenever you do the, the silver tongue thing, it pulls something out of the book, but then it puts something in. Right. In that ending scene, she's just like destroying things slash putting things back in the book. Is yeah. it also pulling anything out? Is that in reference in the book at all to your memory? Well, she's not doing it. I guess the author is or whatever in the book. But. No, it's not. I mean, it's not referenced, but uh, there are two more books. So. Yeah, I guess my point was that in terms of the like, it's the reality stone with extra steps. I, I mean, those extra steps are, I think, kind of important. My point is that it's not it's not quite as like godlike power in the mm -hmm. sense of like i can just do whatever i want without any consequences mm -hmm. like i think the reality stone is does basically <clears throat> but uh because uh, according to the rules now whether or not those rules are bent a little bit at the end or whatever um you know it there's chaos you, you, when she does that it would cause issues right so, like it would put things she could her parents could go into the but whatever so like she would be inclined not to just use that willy-nilly you would think <clears throat> you would think again but that Although, doesn't still like like a dark turn for her could be interesting dark willow season yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i i think that um i think that would make sense I, and, and i think it, yeah it is a it's a fair point that it's definitely something and i'm sure that is something the other books probably would address because mm -hmm. she has that ability would be you know dealing with that and how you raise a child who has the ability to speak magical things into existence <laughs> but anyways lucy t said have to give it to the movie because one i haven't read the book yet and two brendan fraser of course couldn't agree more <laughs> that's my uh, i'm on the same board there <laughs> haven't read the book brendan fraser uh, that darn Skag, who was the patron who requested Inkheart, uh -huh. said, voted for the book. If I remember correctly, Inkheart might have been the first book I got from a Toronto public library after immigrating to Canada back in 2005. Man, the size of that library blew me away. This book pretty much validated how little 10-year-old me felt about the enjoyment of reading. Rereading it, I enjoyed the mostly grounded story, and I feel like the lower amount of magic stuff in the book helps emphasize those events and their out-of-place nature in the world of the book. Movie came out in 2008. 
I was 13 at the peak of my the movie should be exactly like the book or it's bad phase. My disappointment was inevitable. Mm -hmm. Rewatching it, though, I can see the movie trying its best. And after hearing you guys talk about the movie's ending and Maggie's much more important role, I completely agree that the movie ending is better. Andy Serkis as Capricorn is also pretty good, and his makeup team did a good job emulating the descriptions of his colorlessness and his lips. I just can't get over the overly cartoonish henchmen, the rushed plot that seemed too tightly crammed into the one hour 40 minute runtime, and a score that could have been a bit better. There's also the personal feeling that a lot of the creature's CGI budget could have been put towards other aspects, although admittedly I wouldn't be able to say what exactly. Movie also robs us of a black-suited Brendan Fraser knocking a henchman out with the butt of a shotgun. So there's that. <laughs> um, thanks for the great content, as always, you two. P.S. Funka hates crows about as much as she loves cats. Unforgivable. How is somebody that loves cats and hates crows? I don't That's know. a weird combination. But she does, <clears throat> like, um, she uses, like, crows and blackbirds to kind it's of like herald, villains. like. Yeah. Which yeah, is a traditional. Not, yeah, it is pretty traditional. Yeah, I mean, they're not villains, like, I was thinking when I started reading the book um, that I remembered, like, somebody turning into a blackbird, mm -hmm. but that never happened. Maybe it happens in one of the other books. Um, but she does use them as, like, a symbol to, like, herald, right. like... Like a bad like omen. A, a, yeah, a bad thing is going to happen. Right. Um, a couple things. One, uh, I agree. Well, I, I, it's interesting. It's the part about Brendan Fraser, uh, the movie robs us of black-suited Brendan Fraser knocking a henchman out with the butt of a shotgun. Um, he would have gotten to channel his inner Rick O'Connell there for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but and I guess that one I'd have to see it in one, context. One moment, yeah, I'd have to see it in context to see how it works. The, like kind of goofy dad thing. Yeah, because it's not on. like you know I I am not Rick O'Connell, but if I had a, a shotgun, I could rifle butt somebody and probably knock them. You know, yeah, for, for he's a, loop. a big guy. Yeah, he's a big dude, so it's not unreasonable that he wouldn't. Yeah, um, but again, I would have to see the context of how they handled it and mm -hmm. make sure he didn't look like Rick O'Connell or, you know, like an action hero. <laughs> um, definitely agree with that. The runtime was too short um, for what they're trying to cram in. Um, and there was one more thing I was going to say that now I can't remember what it was. Oh, I guess it was. Oh, there was something else. But um, the uh, the Toronto Library must be huge. Toronto Public Library. Yeah. I wonder. That's got to be a cool library, I bet. I, I feel like Toronto would have a cool library. Seems like the kind of city. <laughs> like Canada probably has cool libraries. I don't know. Can't, we have a fair a fair number of Canadian listeners. How are if if you've been to Canada and you've been to like some major cities in the U.S. How do those libraries stack up? Does Canada have a good library system? Because the U.S. has a pretty good library system, all things considered. Yeah. Um, as far as public <laughs> services go, as it's one of our public, better ones. And especially considering that, like, certain sections of politicians yes. keep trying to do away with it, the libraries persist. Yeah. And, and they're and, pretty dang good. And they're good. pretty good, even in smaller. Like, yeah, like, we have a really we, good library We have a good here. library, and we're in a little podunk town, you know, of yeah. you know, less than 100,000 people in the, in the south you know southern midwest or whatever uh, yeah and actually we live in a very red state and yeah. we have a very good interlibrary system yeah. here too. that's what i mean so even you know even in, in a in a place where you would expect because you know those kind of public services tend to be uh, less funded and um overlooked in more conservative areas um so i was thinking a place like canada that tends to be a little more gung-ho about their public services and their and that mm -hmm. sort of thing would have a really good public library system but maybe not maybe it's a weird thing where like america it's one of those things that we just do really well for some reason just 
against all odds. I don't know. <laughs> I would be interested to see if people have been to libraries in both places, what they would think of them. Anyways, but I was my point was I thought I was like, man, I bet Toronto Library is cool. <laughs> so one day I'll make it up there and we'll go check out the Toronto Library. On Facebook, we had five votes for the movie and one for the book. Adam said, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't read the book, but I'm voting for the movie. Not for any complicated, well-argued reason, but just because it has a Carn Terrier in it. Is that, I assume, who plays Toto? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I that's imagine. the only The dog, only dog, so. yeah. If I hadn't missed my chance, I'd have voted for Children of Men for the same reason. The Russian lady's dog was a Carn Terrier. Carn Terriers are the best dogs. I am definitely <laughs> not biased for any reason at all. Interesting. Is it Karen or Karn? Oh, I actually don't know. I have no idea. It could be Karen. Um, I... I I've seen those dogs. They look cute. I've never had one, so <laughs> I don't know. I've only I've only had like bigger dogs. Yeah, I've never had like a small dog like that. Yeah, but it was cute. They're cute dogs. Yeah. So. And Crystal said, "I'm going with the movie only because the book isn't as memorable to me. I don't know how many times during your episode I kept thinking, oh yeah, that did happen. Plus, I may be biased because Brendan Fraser. Everybody loves Brendan Fraser." Everybody loves Brendan Fraser. Oh, not one person. I know. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> That's a bo patron bonus episode. And I don't know if they necessarily dislike Brendan Fraser. It was about a character, but we'll... Assuming that's what you're talking about. Uh, oh, is it in uh, the comments yeah, here? Yeah, it's in the comments here. Oh, never mind. We'll get to it then. Okay. I thought you were talking about something uh, else. No. Um, on Twitter, we had seven votes for the movie, two for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, never in the history of ever has a movie made a fantasy book live up to the visual world I create in my head while reading. So the book, always the book. Fair enough. And Shelby says, Monsters and Mayhem is out now, said, I could not get into the book, but I knew the movie was better when they utilized the tornado from The Wizard of Oz to escape. Also, Toto greater than Tinkerbell always hmm interesting I, that's you know, a controversy and the, the thing the thing with that change is that like i i don't mind the inclusion of toto i'm fine with that and i like that that inclusion actually pays off in the movie because the inclusion of tinkerbell in the book doesn't really pay off doesn't like they, they don't really do anything with yeah. it necessarily i just like the idea of her summoning like a fantastical creature on her first try mm -hmm. is basically what it is yeah and on Instagram, we had three votes for the movie and one for the book. The Leap 77 said, I'm going to give it to the book, even though I have not read it and fantasy genres in general don't interest me. The movie is just ridiculous. <laughs> I know you will hate me, but I'm not a big fan of Fraser's lighter material. Wow. Gods and Monsters and Crash. Yes. This film and yes, even the mummy movies. No. I will say I did like Airheads simply because I'm a huge metalhead myself. Wild. I don't know anybody. That's not true. I don't know anybody in person that I've ever spoken to who doesn't like the first Mummy movie. I know there are people out there. We got a message from one on Patreon, which we'll discuss in our bonus episode <laughs> next month. But I, I don't know anybody who doesn't like the Mummy. Um, uh, the second and third ones are not as good. The second one's still okay. It's not nearly as good as the mm -hmm. first one. And the third one I've actually never seen because I heard it was terrible. Crash is a okay movie. I have not seen Gods and Monsters, and Airheads is like a mediocre 
comedy from the night. It's fine. Like, I, I, if you're a metalhead, I could see being into it. But that's interesting. Yeah, I, it, uh, it's interesting to me, too, just because I feel like the majority of people that I know know Brendan Fraser from either The Mummy yes. or from George of the Jungle. Yes. His lighter fare is what he's yeah, known for. Yeah, is what he's known like, for. I, I honestly almost forgot he was in Crash. And again, I'm Crash is not my favorite movie. Uh, assuming it's the same crash, unless there's multiple crashes. <laughs> I think there are, but I, I assume he's talking about the the one that won the Oscar back in um, 2004. Um, but I, it, that's like an ensemble piece, and I guess... Is he in that? Let me double check. Because like, I was like, Don Cheadle, and then... He is in it. Okay. Man, I didn't even remember he was in that. Because there's like so many people in that movie. But anyways... And I haven't seen Gods and Monsters, so... But yeah, but yeah, George of the Jungle, uh, Blast from the Past, the Mummy movies, obviously. Um, is he in Bedazzled? Uh, mm, I don't know. There's one where he, uh, what's her name? I think it's Bedazzled or something. There's one where he, she's like a genie or something, or a, uh, she, there, he, oh. he lets, is it Bedazzled? There's a or movie bewitched. where... No, Bewitched is nah, not No, it's not Bewitched. It's something like Bedazzled or but. Be, where he 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 gets wishes from uh what's her name? Oh gosh, what is that actress's name? <laughs> um hold on. I'm going back and find it. I believe also that movie would be very problematic. Uh I believe Brendan Fra Fraser wears blackface in that movie. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I could be wrong about that, but I believe there's but it is called Bedazzled from 2000. Um and what is her name? Uh Hopeless dweeb Elliot Richards is granted seven wishes by the devil. That's right. She's the devil. Um, uh, in order to snare Allison, the girl of his dreams, in exchange for his soul. I I've seen that movie. I don't, I don't think it's very good. Uh, Elizabeth Hurley plays the devil in it, and she grants him all these wishes. And one of them is, maybe he's not in blackface, but one of them he wants to be, he, he thinks he can get the girl if he becomes a famous athlete, so he becomes a basketball player, and she like makes him a giant like basketball player. But I, and I, I might be misremembering that he's in blackface. It might just be that they do some like weird makeup to like make him look like big. I don't remember. Anyways, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but to me, those are the movies that I when I think of Brendan Fraser, I don't think of Crash. Yeah. I don't think of Gods and Monsters. Yeah, it's interesting. Fair enough. Uh, so our winner was the movie, which was a little surprising. I thought more people would disagree with my uh, my verdict. Um, but the movie won with 20 votes to the book's five, uh, plus our one listener who couldn't decide. A, a trouncing by the film. A little bit, yeah. I, uh, we were kind of interested to see which way it was going to go, and that was not honestly what I expected. It uh, it definitely... Okay, I'm happy to report he's not in blackface in Bedazzling, <laughs> but they do turn him into an albino, I think, which is also problematic maybe yeah. less so i don't know <laughs> anyways <laughs> it's not blackface but yeah uh the movie that's a that's a rousing that's one of the bigger wins for a movie for something that like, kind of like lesser known yeah like this. Uh, yeah. yeah especially for i guess that's my point for a movie that people don't necessarily think like i didn't yeah. i didn't even know it was a movie that yeah. existed um, well and i think probably what helped this time was just the accessibility of it the movie is an hour and 40 minutes long and the book was like 560 that is, pages. That, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. So like point. I can't even uh, like even if you're somebody who usually reads along with us or reads along with us frequently, I can't even fault you for wanting to skip an almost 600 page book, you know? Yeah. No, that's fair. That is fair. All right. Time now 
to get in to learning a little bit about Rudyard Kipling. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. All right, so uh, disclaimer before we get started. Um, I spent way too much time on this segment uh, because I am not particularly well versed in like this era of history and especially not like this era of British history. Right. I could probably tell you a little more about American history. Um, I can't. <laughs> but I, I, so like I writing this segment like. Every single sentence that I read, I had to open up like eight new tabs to figure, to out, figure out like the context who's of what, this yeah. person, what's this event, yeah, like what is the context here. Right. Um, so just like disclaimer, um, if I get things wrong, forgive me my trespasses. Uh, we're gonna do the best we can. Mm -hmm. um, so Joseph Rudyard Kipling. No word on why he dropped the Joseph, but uh, that's that's his first name. Decided Rudyard was just a way cooler <laughs> name, I guess. Uh, so he was an English journalist, short story writer, poet, and novelist who was born in British India, uh, which inspired much of his work. Um, Kipling, in the late 19th and early 20th century, was among the United Kingdom's most popular writers, uh, probably still one of the best-known writers from this era. Uh, definitely from this era, I would think, yeah. Um, in 1907, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. He was actually the first English-language writer to receive the prize. Hmm. Um, and at 41, he was its youngest recipient. Uh, Wikipedia said youngest recipient to date. I did not fact-check that. So there could be somebody younger now, or Right, not. in the intervening. Yeah. It, it seems likely that... Nah, 41's still pretty young, but it seems likely yeah. that somebody would have gotten one younger than that. Um, I was caught off guard for a second by a first English language writer to receive the prize, but then I remembered that that's actually like a Swedish yeah. prize. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and probably. then that made sense. <laughs> yeah, because I, I also was, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's the Nobel, yeah, that's given out by, yeah, Sweden yeah. or whatever. So yeah, it makes a little more sense. Um, he was also sounded out for the British Poet Laureateship um, and several times for knighthood, but declined both. I did not find why. Yeah, I was say, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't I have don't expected know. that he would if decline you, knighthood. If you know why, let me know. Yeah, I don't know why he would, unless it was, maybe it was some kind of like, like, oh, I'm not worthy kind of thing. I guess, yeah, I guess that's possible. Um. But he was born in Bombay, which is now Mumbai, yes. um, in 1865, uh, but was sent to England at the age of five to be educated, which I understand was um, traditional. Uh, near the end of his schooling, it became apparent that he lacked the academic ability to attend Oxford on a scholarship, um, and his parents couldn't afford to just send him outright. So his father got him a job in Lahore, uh, which is now part of Pakistan. Um, as the assistant editor of a local newspaper. Um, and so Kipling returned to British India. Um, and the vibe I got was that he, like, missed it the whole time he was living in England oh, as a yeah. child. Yeah. Uh, but he worked for local newspapers there until 1889. Um, during that time, he was also asked to contribute short stories to the newspaper, kicking off his literary career. Um, his first collection of poems was published in 1886, and his first collection of short stories was published in 1888. 
Um, that same year that he published that first collection, he wrote six more short story collections. Um, before you get too impressed, it only was like around 40 stories total. They were not long collections. Uh, he sold the rights to those uh, for about 200 pounds and a small royalty and then used that money to start traveling. Um, he traveled through Asia and America, writing and publishing the entire time, um, and eventually ended up in London, where he would publish his first novel, have a nervous breakdown, and later get married. I thought that was the title for a second. <laughs> I was like, that's a real like modern title. <laughs> have yeah. a nervous breakdown and later get married. It's like, that's a weird title. Um, we're kind of scooting through his biographical yeah, yeah. information <laughs> yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, no, I got it. <laughs> uh, he and his wife moved to Vermont, which is where he would write the Jungle Books. Uh, they lived in America until 1896, until two incidents. Uh, one was the Venezuela Crisis of 1895, which was an imperialist border dispute between the United States and England, uh, resulting in what Kipling felt was persistent anti-British sentiment in the press in America. Uh, the other uh, event was negative publicity from the arrest and trial of his brother-in-law, mm. who struggled, struggled with alcoholism. Um, there were some kerfluffles. Right. Uh, so he moved his family back to England. Um, and at this point, he was famous and uh, had been getting increasingly political in his writings. Um, in, in 1897 and 1899, he would publish two poems that created controversy, uh, regarded as by some as anthems for enlightened and duty-bound empire building. Uh, the poems were seen as by others as propaganda for brazen-faced imperialism and its attendant racial attitudes. I feel like those two things are the same thing. <laughs> like, the, those two groups of people viewed them I in mean, the same way. They are the same, but one group likes it and yes. thinks it's good, yes. and the other group is like, yeah. nah, bro. Uh, yeah, this is funny to me, because enlightened, duty-bound empire building is just another way to say brazen-faced imperialism. imperialism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> All right, let me take a nice gulp of wine. Um, these poems, um, content warning for racism. Um, the first of these poems was recessional, which was composed for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, so you know it's got to be good. The Diamond Jubilee. Uh, here's an excerpt. If drunk with power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget lest we forget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, classic. Second poem was also written for the Diamond Jubilee, but was later replaced with recessional. Uh, the second poem is about the Philippine-American War, and it's called The White Man's Burden. There it is. It's where the trope comes from, my friends. <laughs> so here's an excerpt from that. Mm. Take up the white man's burden, send forth Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Classic stuff. Yeah. Classic. Uh, so these poems um, reflected the narrative of the era, that it was the moral duty of... 
enlightened, aka white races, to quote unquote civilize the brutish other, aka non-white races. Um, and we're gonna put a pin in that and save it. Yeah. That's unfortunately going to be important in our upcoming breakdown of the yep. jungle book. Yep. So yep. we're just we're gonna we're gonna save that and remember it. A side note, though, um, the, maybe my favorite bit about this was that Kipling was a huge fan of Mark Twain. Um, <laughs> Mark Twain, famously anti-imperialist, um, and yes. had, they had actually met years earlier and got on like pretty well. Um, but Twain read The White Man's Burden and wrote an absolutely scathing satirical response in the form of his essay to the person sitting in darkness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, yeah, Twain's not one to mince words for no, uh, his um, and, opinions and of Twain other is also not one to get into a battle of words with. No, you so. don't go toe to toe with Mark Twain. No. That's literally like rule number one of like, <laughs> yeah, you don't. To be fair, he didn't go after Mark Twain. Mark Twain just responded to him. It's more like he was calling him out. But yeah, you don't you don't want Mark Twain uh, on <laughs> you your case. You don't want Mark Twain calling you out. Good lord! No, very bad. Um, <laughs> so, despite some mixed reactions to these poems, uh, Kipling continued to write and travel. Uh, it's the only thing we're um, proud about Missouri about Mark Twain. <laughs> yeah, right. He's the only good thing we ever produced in this state. Um, so, uh, mixed reactions, um, he continued to write, continued to travel, continued to be political. Uh, he had a hand in turning Canadian public opinion towards a more pro-British government party, um, during an election, which I have apparently lost the year of in my notes. Um, basically there was a party gaining popularity that wanted to like work more closely with America and Britain was like, mm, we don't like that. Mm -hmm. um, so they had him write some nice propaganda ah, about that party classic, um, to turn the tide of public opinion. Uh, he also opposed efforts towards Irish independence, considering it treason um, and was a staunch opponent of Marxism. I mean, that goes without saying, I <laughs> yeah. feel like, <laughs> Um, during the First World War, Kipling was asked by the British government to write propaganda, an offer which he accepted. Um, his son John would later be killed in action at the Battle of Luz, um, and Kipling would struggle with that guilt for the remainder of his life. Mm. Um, after the war, Kipling was skeptical of the 14 points and the League of Nations, uh, but had, had hopes that the United States would abandon isolationism and the post-war world would be dominated by an Anglo-French-American alliance. All the whitest people. All the whitest people. Yep. Uh, he also continued to be openly hostile towards communism in his writings uh, and in 1920 co-founded the Liberty League, oh, a short-lived enterprise focused on promoting classical liberal ideas as a response to the rising power of communist tendencies within Great Britain or as Kipling put it, quote, to combat the advance of Bolshevism. Yes, which Bolshevism, I don't know if you're, there's, at times, Bolshevism has been code word for Jews also. Yeah. <laughs> That's, there's, like, it, depending on your context and history, and I don't know enough about here, but anyways. Um, the funny thing, though, is that despite that, his works were actually really popular under Lenin's early rule in Russia. Um, although it was obligatory for Soviet journals to begin translations of Kipling with an attack on him as a fascist and an imperialist. And hey, they weren't wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so many older editions of Rudyard Kipling's book have a swastika printed on the cover. 
um, associated with a picture of an elephant carrying a lotus flower, reflecting the influence of Indian culture. Um, once the swastika became widely associated with the Nazis, right. um, Kipling ordered that it should no longer adorn his books. Um, and less than a year after, or less than a year before his death, Kipling gave a speech to the Royal Society of St. George, warning of the danger which Nazi Germany posed to Britain. So at least he wasn't a Nazi. Boy. It was a low bar, yeah. but you cleared it, bud. <laughs> you cleared Boy, it. Boy, talk about, <laughs> yeah, just fucking crawling over a bar on the ground. Not a Nazi. Um, so Kipling kept writing until the early 1930s, uh, but at a slower pace and with less success than he had before. Um, on the night of January 12th, 1936, he suffered a hemorrhage in his small intestine. Um, he underwent surgery, but died less than a week later at the age of 70. Um, his death had previously been incorrectly announced in a magazine um, to which he wrote, like, wrote back to the magazine. I've just read that I'm dead. Don't forget to delete me from your list of subscribers. All right, that's a good. Thing. That's a good. That's a, fun, a good comeback. That's a fun little moment for him. <laughs> uh, so Rudyard Kipling obviously still has a massive influence and reputation, although that has shifted around with various political and social climates of different eras. Um, in modern day India, Kipling's legacy remains controversial. What? No way. <laughs> Never would have guessed, um, especially among modern nationalists and post-colonial critics. Um, although some contemporary Indian academics have like a fairly nuanced view of his works. Um, oh boy. Okay. I'm going to butcher some <sighs> names. I'm so sorry. Um, Jawaharlal. 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 I'm going to go with what you said. I don't know. Um, Nehru, uh, the first prime minister of independent India, um, often described Kipling's novel Kim as one of his favorite books. Um, In contrast, the Indian politician and writer um, Sashi Tharoor commented, Kipling, that flatulent voice of Victorian imperialism, would wax eloquent on the noble duty to bring law to those without it. Which pretty much sums up like what he was about. Oh yeah. Uh, so that's where I'm gonna leave that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I did want to. I found this the other day, and I just want to add this. Uh, George Orwell was not a fan, and I just have to read. <laughs> George Orwell, another person you don't want going after. Don't want you going. With and words. to be fair, he was going after him post his death, because uh, this is from 1942. But uh, Orwell wrote uh, a consideration of Kipling's work for Horizon in 1942. Um. Noting that although as a, quote, jingo imperialist, Kipling was, quote, morally insensitive and aesthetically disgusting, his work had many qualities which ensured that while, quote, every enlightened person has has despised him, nine-tenths of those enlightened persons are forgotten, and Kipling is in some sense still there. Uh, And then my favorite part of this was the end here. It is a great, and this is the end of an excerpt from this article. It is a great thing in his favor that he is not witty, not daring, has no wish to a Peter la bourgeois, uh, some French concept or thing that I don't know what that means. So let's see. Uh, this French phrase has become a rallying cry for the French decade of trans-preciseness. It's usually shock or scandalize their middle classes. He will not shock or scandalize the middle classes. Um, oh, certainly not. Uh, but... Uh, um, 
He dealt largely in platitudes, and since we live in a world of platitudes, much, much of what he said sticks. Even his worst follies seem less shallow and less irritating than the enlightened utterances of the same period, such as Wilde's epigrams or the collection of cracker mottos at the end of Man and Superman, which is by George, George Bernard Shaw. So some collateral damage for <laughs> Oscar Wilde and <laughs> Shaw there at the end. But yeah, Orwell, uh, scathing indictment of... Um, Kipling, but also a kind of a mixed like respect mixed with yeah yeah well, and that was kind of like a lot of what I saw where people were talking about him was like he's not like super creative yeah but his narrative prose is very good like he yeah. was a very good like technical like narrative writer writer yeah interesting anyways. All right, that was a little bit about Rudyard Kipling. Now, we're going to learn a little bit more about his most famous work, or one of his most famous works, The Jungle Book. It's Walt Disney's The Jungle Book. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. Yes, The Jungle Book, a new departure in contemporary entertainment. Kid, we've got to get to a tree. This calls for some big scratching. You're lots of fun, Baloo. A boisterous musical comedy version of Rudyard Kipling's familiar stories about the boy Mowgli and his encounters with human nature in the jungle. Ah, this is for sure his most famous work. There's the, the man who would be king. That's pretty well known. But yeah, I, the jungle book is definitely, yeah. Uh, so the Jungle Book, um, I, this is a, a short segment. I did not include tons and tons of stuff here. Uh, but the Jungle Book is a collection of short stories um, by Rudyard Kipling, published in 1894. did not realize it was a collection of stories. Yeah. I assumed it was more of like a novel. Yeah, no, it's a, a collection of, of stories. Some of them are connected and some of them aren't. Interesting. Um, so the main character is a boy called Mowgli. Or Mowgli, as I saw in your notes. Yes, I have a note about that. We'll get to yeah. it. Yeah, um, I'm gonna say Mowgli because yes. I'm not gonna remember. No, to say I'm Mowgli. not either. Um, so the main character is Mowgli, although there are many recurring animal characters, and not all of the stories in the Jungle Book feature Mowgli. The tales in the book are fables, um, using animals in an anthropomorphic manner to teach moral lessons. The verses of the law of the jungle, for example, lay down rules for the safety of individuals, families, and communities. Uh, the stories explore themes of law and freedom, as well as abandonment and fostering. There is some evidence that Kipling wrote the collection of stories for his daughter Josephine, um, who died from pneumonia in 1899 at the age of six. The second Jungle Book, a sequel to the first, was published in 1895, and features five stories about Mowgli and three unrelated stories. The stories in the Jungle Book were inspired in part by the ancient Indian fable texts, such as the Panchen Tantra and the Jataka Tales. Uh, for example, an older, moral-filled mongoose and snake version of the Rikki-Tikki-Tavi story by Kipling is found in Book 5 of the Panchen Tantra. Um, in a letter written and signed by Kipling um, around 1895, Kipling actually confesses to borrowing ideas and stories in the Jungle Book, 
quote, in fact, it is extremely possible that I have helped myself promiscuously, but at present cannot remember from whose stories I have stolen. Nice. And now that I think is a complex, like kind of layered issue. Yeah. um, Because everything that our minds create is an amalgamation of everything that we've seen and read and heard. Obviously. Yeah. Um, Tends to be. Yeah. But I think there's kind of a different, (laughs) kind of a different layer to it when it's coming from, a literal colonist this this to me sounds like a guy who like was like i heard a lot of really cool stories from indigenous people and was like i take i take i take yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's what that sounds like (laughs) Uh, so the jungle book was popular upon publication and has remained probably the most popular of kipling's works due in large part to various adaptations um it, it stays in the collective consciousness through adaptations uh, it has also come to be used as a motivational book by the Cub Scouts. Really? I don't recall according, that from my time in the Cub Scouts. According to the internet, maybe you had a scout leader who didn't care for it. It's possible. I do not remember. <laughs> at least I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I don't think the... I don't remember reading it. I don't remember it being mentioned. And I don't think any of the Cub Scout ranks are related to it at all. I could be wrong. Cause it's like bear and cub. It's like it's like America. It's like mm-hmm. it's like wolf and like it's like a, a North American. I mean, there are and wolves stuff. and bears and right in the Jungle Book. Fair enough. Um, right, famously a bear, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I get. I, I don't know. I I guess it's possible, that, or not, I'm sure it's probable. Clearly, but I just I I don't think I had that experience. I guess we didn't use. I also mm-hmm. wonder if maybe that was an older, like maybe it was it like a Cub be. Scout thing, yeah. like in the I early twentieth century. I didn't dig deep and kind of has died out in terms. Of, yeah, it was just. I'm just kind of exploring it because yeah. I have that background. I was a Boy Scout for my entire childhood. So, uh, Many readers have interpreted the work as allegories about the politics and society of the time, which we are also going to put a pen in. That's going to be important mm-hmm. later. Uh, so for this episode, I'm primarily focusing on four of the stories, three of which come from The Jungle Book. And those are Mowgli's Brothers, Cause Hunting, and Tiger Tiger. Uh, the fourth, How Fear Came, comes from the second Jungle Book. Uh, there are four other stories from the second Jungle Book that feature Mowgli, which I might read, but I'm definitely not committing <laughs> myself to. Uh, and those are Letting in the Jungle, The King's Ancus, Red Dog, and The Spring Running. And I assume your thought process there is you know which ones at least more stuff is pulled from. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the movie. Yeah. So I was able to kind of like read synopses and and determine like which ones might Might. have stuff that the movie pulled from. Um, The the four that I think are probably not so much related, I, I might read them just to see if there's anything interesting that I think the movie could have incorporated, but I'm not like super worried about it. Okay. All right. Speaking of that movie, it's now time to learn a little bit more about the jungle book. 1967. There's the devious car. Trust in me. Just in me. And the envious Louie, King of the Apes. Oh, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. Talk like you. The Dawn Patrol. Oh, the aim of our patrol is a question rather droll. And the pompous Colonel Hottie. A dusty muscle. Soldier, that haircut is not regulation. Rather on the gaudy side, don't you think? 
Ah, that's better. The Jungle Book is a 1967 film directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, uh, who directed The Aristocrats and The Sword in the Stone, uh, The Rescuers, and Robin Hood, and was an animator of some capacity, whether it be the director of animation or an animator on Cinderella, Peter Pan, Sleeping Beauty, Alice in Wonderland, Lady and the Tramp. He worked on all of this stuff mm. back then. Uh, it was written by Larry Clemens, Ralph Wright, Ken Anderson, and Vance Gary. Uh, uh, there's a million different Disney things that they've worked on between them all. I, I couldn't go through and list for uh, each yeah, of them. I mean, I think Disney Studios at the time was like a handful of people. Yeah, yeah it so. wasn't. Yeah, they they worked on like everything that yeah. had come out at that point uh, to differing extents. Um, the film stars Bruce Reitherman, who's the son of Wolfgang as Mowgli, uh, Phil Harris, Sebastian Cabot, uh, Sebastian, I think, Cabot, uh, Louis Prima, George Sanders, Sterling Holloway, J. Pat O'Malley, Vernon Felton, and Clint Howard, among others. The film has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 65% on Metacritic, and a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb. And the film made... $378 million against a budget of $4 million. Now that is life. T that is with re-releases and everything. Right. And its initial run, I believe I read that it made something like 30 million ish, mm -hmm. which is still a yeah, crazy still big return on <laughs> investment considering the budget was 4 million. Um, but yeah, that 378 number is like every time it's been re-released and everything else from what I could understand. So, uh, after the disappointing reaction to The Sword and the Stone, which is their film preceding The Jungle Book, mm -hmm. Disney, dis Walt, and this is Disney, Walt Disney himself, uh, decided to be, uh, almost every time here that I say Disney, I'm actually meaning Walt Disney. <laughs> Just as a, <laughs> this is right before his death, so this is, he's still involved. Uh, Disney decided to become more involved in the story of The Jungle Book than he had been in, pa in the past two films that uh, the studio had produced. Uh, with his nephew Roy Disney saying that quote he certainly influenced everything about it with the jungle book he obviously got hooked on the jungles and the characters that lived there end quote that's a boring quote okay <laughs> <laughs> so uh Bill Pete actually ended up writing the original original story treatment for the jungle book and it was a very dark version of the story that I believe was closer to the book uh and it involved at the end at some point Mowgli actually killing Boldio with his own gun uh, Disney did not like this. Uh, Walt Disney did not like this, and he insisted on script <laughs> I changes. Why. <laughs> Bill Pete was like, "No," and after a big long argument, Bill Pete just left Disney <laughs> in January of 1964. Bill so, Pete stuck to his guns. Yep, he was like, "No, screw you, I'm out." <laughs> um, he pulled a uh, what's his name? The guy who formed his own studio. Oh, Don Bluth. Don Bluth. He pulled a Bluth. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, then Larry Clemens was assigned as the new writer and Disney told him very specifically, do not read the book <laughs> that he was adapting. Seems like a bad idea. But Clemens, from what I was able to find, still at least did to some extent. Um, he apparently wanted to start the story in media res, but Walt insisted on a more straightforward approach to the storytelling. Uh, and actually would it be, and which is what they ended up going with. And, this would actually, The Jungle Book would actually be the last animated film from the company to have Walt's kind of personal touches on it because he would die December 15th, 1966, several months before this film came mm -hmm. out or before the film was released. Uh, this is also one of the first Disney films to use a lot of like familiar slash famous voices in main roles. In general, prior to this, they would use 
sort of lesser known actors mm-hmm. and actresses and that sort of thing. Not ex- and explicitly, there were roles here and there that were bigger actors and stuff, but this one had a lot of them. Um, and apparently a lot of the staff at Disney was shocked to hear that uh, the comedian Phil Harris was going to be um, in the in in the Jungle Book. Uh, Disney actually had apparently suggested Harris after meeting him, him at a party, and Harris would go on to improvise most of his lines as he considered the lines that they had scripted for him didn't feel natural. Mm. So he just made it. Yeah, all he was. Um, he's blue. Yeah, he's blue. Because he uh, and he's also in uh, the Aristocats and Robin Hood. Which I lovingly refer to that as the Phil Harris trio. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, so David Bailey was originally cast as Mowgli, but during production, it went on long enough that his voice changed Oop. and cracked. And so he <laughs> couldn't fit it. He didn't fit the young innocence of Mowgli's character anymore. So they had to recast him. Out you go. Yep. Uh, and then they recast him by Wolfgang Reitherman being like, my son is here. He can do it. Uh, who would also apparently just voice Christopher Robin in Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. That so. nepotism, baby. There you go. Um, he did not go on to act much after that. He, I looked at his like credits. He has like mm-hmm. five, and it was like uh, Winnie the Pooh, Jungle Book, and like a couple of other things. And then seemed to get out of acting. So didn't didn't stick with him. Uh, so the film score was composed by George Bruns, who did Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, The Absent-Minded Professor, The Sword in the Stone, The Aristocats, uh, Robin Hood, uh, Herbie Rides Again, among other things, um, and apparently reused some of his cues from previous Disney films. The scene where Mowgli wakes up after escaping uh, King Louie um, was from something in Sleeping Beauty. And then the scene where Bagheera gives a eulogy to Baloo when he mistakenly thinks he's dead uh, he uses Paul J. Smith's organ score from Snow White and the Seven Doors. Interesting. So not only is Disney reusing animation, they're reusing music, baby. Gotta save money. Gotta save money. And 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 I don't think I have a note about it here, but uh, this Wolfgang Reitherman, he's one of the guys who reuses animation. He was like mm-hmm. one of the famously used reused animation. Oh and it yeah, if you yeah, movie. if you look up like those compilations yeah. of like reused Disney animation, it's like almost all from this era. Yeah, and it, Wolfgang Reitherman was on on a, all of the older films before this. He was like the head of animation or whatever, and yeah. then he moved up to being the director for like a few films. Um, but yeah, and he 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 reused quite a few bits of animation in those movies. So the, uh, in fact, I think in this one, one of the scenes with the dogs is reused or there's wolves or dogs or something. And it's, it's reused from there's lady a, in the tramp. No, something reused from 101 Dalmatians. Yes. I think it's from 101. No, 101 Dalmatians would have had to reuse this. Cause I think it came out. Maybe vice versa. I don't remember, but yeah. Anyways. But I'm pretty sure Bambi's mom is in this movie. Oh yeah. I'm, pr- I'm okay, pretty sure. We'll try to look out for it. So the score features eight original songs. Obviously, the um, the the score that George Bruns confirmed uh, uh, composed was like the the orchestral type mm-hmm. of score. Uh, the film also features eight original songs, which is what everybody remembers from, <laughs> from the movie. Uh, seven of those are by the Sherman Brothers, and one was by Terry Gilkison. Gilkison was actually replaced by the Sherman Brothers after Disney thought that the songs that Gilkison wrote were too dark, and those were also partially based on. The original screenplay that mm-hmm. was also darker. Uh, the only song of his that remained in the cut is the Bare Necessities. So the one that everybody remembers. Yeah. Is, yeah. It was and it was his lightest song of the it was like well, the I most mean, upbeat song of have, the bunch. It would have to be. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, so the vultures in the film were originally going to be voiced by the Beatles. I, I only have the vaguest memory of this movie. I've seen it mm-hmm. when I was a kid several times, but I and I remember the vultures and remember being like, those look like the Beatles. <laughs> Uh, and they were going to be the Beatles at one point. Uh, but the band's manager, Brian Epstein, uh, not but, the band's band manager, Brian Epstein, approached Disney about having the Beatles appear in one of their movies. And then Disney had the uh, Vultures animated specifically to be voiced by the band. But when Epstein took that idea to the band, apparently he didn't get this. I don't know why he thought it was a good yeah, idea to go to Disney first. Clear it and first. Then, whatever. Um, but when he took it to the Beatles, uh, John Lennon vetoed that idea immediately. <laughs> Why does that not surprise yeah, me? Not at all. Yeah. Uh, John Lennon vetoed that idea. Uh, and he told Epstein to tell Disney they should hire Elvis instead. <laughs> um, but the look of the vultures remained with their mop top haircuts and their Liverpool, Liverpool voices, obviously an homage to the Beatles. Um, and one bird's voice and features are clearly based on George Harrison. When the Beatles left the project, though, the song was rewritten as a barbershop quartet instead of the more Beatles styled mm-hmm. song that they were going to have originally. They wanted to make it more timeless since it wasn't the Beatles doing it. I mean, that makes sense. And they gave them a barbershop quartet, but they left the animation the same. So it looks like the Beatles doing a barbershop quartet, which is fun. So I thought this was really interesting. Uh, Gregory Peck was the president of the Academy of Motion Arts and Sciences, the people who do the Oscars. Mm. Um, And he, for a period of time in the 60s, he tried his hardest to get um, a full-length animated feature film, and specifically The Jungle Book, not only nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, but he wanted it to win the award for Best Picture. He resigned as president in 1970 uh, when other members from the Academy didn't agree with him that animated films should be nominated for the award. And it would be over 20 years before uh, the considered another award mm. or another animated film um, for best picture. And that would be Beauty and the Beast in 1991. But anyways, I thought that was super interesting yeah. that Gregory Peck was like, uh, yeah, animation is real art <laughs> or what. I don't know why he just <laughs> he was going to bat hard for uh, animation. Which I, I mean, cool. I think animation should be. Yeah. No, absolutely. I don't know if I would say the Jungle Book, but yeah, I don't know. If Jungle Book would be my pick necessarily. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. Um, but Jungle Book was nominated uh, for one Oscar for Best Original Song for Bare Necessities. So uh, jazz singer Louis Armstrong, and this is really interesting to me, Louis Armstrong was originally set to voice King Louis, um, but uh, eventually another uh, jazz singer, Louis Prima, was cast instead after Walt Disney feared that the idea of Armstrong, who's a black guy, obviously, being cast to play an ape would make the audience find the film racist. However, the monkeys who kidnap Mowgli and deliver him to King Louie were all voiced by black actors. <laughs> so, I, like, uh, it's... I don't, I don't even... I don't even know what to say about I that. know, I know. I, like... Mm. <laughs> you know what? Let's put a pin in that. Yes, we'll <laughs> just put a pin in that. Talk about it more in the episode we'll after we've watched that. it and refreshed our memories. Yeah, refreshed on that our scene. memories. Because initially, my thought is like, okay, but you're you're doing, you're taking culturally right. from the black music scene, yeah, and then not casting a black guy to play that character. But it is a, uh, I get like, oh, it's a complicated. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Very uh well yeah we'll come back to that after we watch the film and see what we think. Couple more notes here. Uh, according to Elsie Kipling Bainbridge, Rudyard Kipling's daughter, 
which is she a Bainbridge scholar? Is that what they're fucking named know. after? I don't know. Take that <laughs> Bainbridge scholars. And anyways, um, and this is the thing you mentioned earlier. Uh, according to her, Mowgli is pronounced Mowgli, or yeah, rhyming with cow, so Mowgli almost, not Mowgli. Um, and apparently, she never forgave Walt Disney for this mistake, and was very upset that they in the film have it pronounced Mowgli how instead would, of Mowgli. How would you know? How would you know? I don't know. Maybe she wrote a letter and Disney ignored it. Who knows? Uh, a couple more things uh, before we get to or one last note before we get to the reviews. Uh, in January 2021, Disney removed access to the film for children's profiles on Disney Plus and strengthened the warning message that they had originally put on the film a couple years prior to read, quote, this program includes negative depictions uh, and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes are wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge the harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. So this is one of the movies that got the little mm. warning, the little content warning ahead of time that, oh, we, we were very racist back in the day. Still are probably, but yeah. less so <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> Anyways. A little less overt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then finally, getting to some reviews from the time period. Time magazine uh, noted in their review that the film strayed far from Kipling's stories, but, quote, nevertheless, the result is thoroughly delightful. It is the happiest possible way to remember Walt Disney. Again, this came out right after he passed away. Howard Thompson of the New York Times praised the film as, quote, simple, uncluttered, straightforward fun as put together by the director Wolfgang Ratherman, four screenwriters, and the usual small army of technicians. Using some lovely exotic pastel backgrounds and a nice clutch of tunes, the picture unfolds like an intelligent comic strip fairy tale. Well, that was a, lot, a, of, lot, that was of a lot of words that I don't know if I agree with, but sure. Uh, the comic strip fairy tale i mean what it's a nice it's animated tunes yeah whatever it was written in the 60s they didn't know how to <laughs> use words back then <laughs> uh richard Schickel or uh Schickel, reviewing for life magazine referred to it as quote the best thing of its kind since dumbo another short bright unscary and blessedly uncultivated cartoon okay now hang on <laughs> I'm going to take issue with referring to Dumbo as unscary. Yeah, right? Because Dumbo is terrifying. Very scary film. I have no interest. It's one of those Disney films that I have, I have zero, zero interest in rewatching. zero interest in revisiting yeah. Dumbo. No, mm -mm. no thank you. Won't do it. I'm good. Just looks like a sad movie. I don't want to watch it. Uh, and I tried to find, so I couldn't find a written review by Ebert about oh, this man. film. But, because I actually don't know if he was reviewing films in 67 when this came out. Probably maybe was like writing for a small newspaper or something. I'm not sure. But um, on a re-release in 1990, mm. Siskel and the Ebert on their TV show talked about it. And I was able to find a video of them talking about it. And I didn't like translate it all. But they like lightly praised the film. Uh, they did say their main point was that oh, it's fine. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I don't know if I'd recommend it because it's not as good as like the other Disney yeah. films of the era basically was their point like they were like it's not or not even of the era they're like it's not as good as you know um, right well everything was compared to like early disney like the classics yeah like they're the like it's not age. as good as cinderella or sleeping yeah. beauty or blah 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 it's not as good as that but it's fine it was basically yeah. their review they i don't even think they gave it on the tv show if they gave it like a star rating or not but my based on their the the tone of their conversation my guess would be they'd give it like 
two out of four stars <laughs> or like one and a half out of four stars or something like that. Um, they gave it like a begrudging recommendation. So there you go. Katie, before we tell everybody where they can watch this one, uh, we wanted to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by supporting us on patreon.com slash this film is lit and by following us on all of the social media, just search for this film is lit. If you support us on Patreon for 15 bucks a month, you get your name read at the top of every prequel episode like I did at the beginning of this one, but you also get to recommend stuff that you would like for us to talk about, which is what this is. And who's this a request by? Uh, this is a, a request from a number one or close to number one fan. Yes. Shelby Suderman. Up there among the top. Yeah. She comments on everything and has been a patron since the very beginning. Shelby Suderman says Monsters and Mayhem is out now. So thank you, Shelby. Uh, we're excited to talk about The Jungle Book. Where can people watch it? I think this one's pretty easy, but. Well, you can check with your local library. Uh, probably a good chance they'll have this one. Um, or if you uh, still have a local video rental store, you can check with them. I don't know how much longer I get to keep saying that. Probably not much too much longer. Um, But uh, aside from that, you can stream this with a subscription to Disney Plus, which is what we will be doing. Yep. Or you can rent it for around 3 to $4 from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV, or AMC Theaters On Demand. All right. That's where you can watch The Jungle Book. You can come back in one week's time. We're talking about The Jungle Book. I'm interested to see. I have not watched this since I was a little kid. I will say this, it's not it was never one of my favorite. It's it's not one of Disney my films. Big favorites either. I think it's fine. Um I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I remember it quite well. <laughs> um there was a summer when all my siblings would watch was The Jungle Book and Tarzan. Oh, fair enough. Well, Tarzan slaps though, and The Jungle Book is I agree fine. that Tarzan <laughs> slaps, but I was I was I was worn very thin on orphaned boys raised by jungle animals Fair by enough. the end of that summer. Fair enough with problematic <laughs> colonialist elements. Yeah, for sure. I get it. It's fine. Yeah. But I am interested to see kind of how I, how I feel about it uh, as an adult. Cause this is one, un, I think unlike any of the other Disney movies we've watched, I, like beauty and the beast and stuff and little mermaid. I had seen those at least somewhat like, not when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd probably seen them at least once in, like, high school or, you know, when I was a little bit older and, like, mm -hmm. my brain worked a little bit and was forming memories. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen The Jungle Book since I was, like, four or five. You know what I mean? Like, Very I don't excited. know if I've seen this movie since I was, like, a little, little kid. So... Yeah, so, yeah. so we'll be talking about The Jungle Book in one week's time, and be sure to remember... All of those things we put a pin in. Yeah, lots of things with pins in them, and we'll surely be, forget to pull out one of them. It's be important. Oh, I will not. Okay. Fantastic. Until that time, guys, gals, non binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books, watching movies, and, and keep, keep being awesome. awesome.